Amen. Love that song. I think I love that song because it is such an amazing summary of the gospel. And it's all that God has foreknown that he did for us, continues to do for us. Amen. Uh, I do want to get into our uh, message this morning, but before we do, uh, as you guys know, I tend to forget things. Just hold on. I know. Um, uh, I wanted to mention um, in a couple of weeks, uh, we are so excited. Next week, we will be finishing up the series on Galatians. Uh, but the week after that, we're starting a, a new series. And it's Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And I literally am so excited about this series. I've uh, been praying over and working on this now for a few weeks and just excited to see where God's going to go with this. Um, I pray that it'd be an encouragement and a challenge to all of us um, as we just dive into God's word and try to unpack the answer to that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And so we want to let you know ahead of time uh, because we want to be encouraging you to invite someone to join you. That not only next week with Easter, obviously we know many of you will invite family and friends, and that's awesome, and I pray that you'll do that. But I pray that more than just next Sunday, that maybe you would invite someone to be a part of this series. Maybe you know someone who's just going through something right now, that they just need an encouragement. Um, This is going to be an encouraging message. It may have moments where not feel that way, but it will be, trust me. And so I'm excited for this upcoming series starting here in a couple of weeks. And so, uh, but this morning we are going to be in Galatians. And before we get to that, you guys like my new bracelet? You guys like that? Isn't that sweet? So one of the children in our children's ministry, uh, I saw that she had made one for Sandra, actually two, I think. And I made a comment on it, and I was like, well, that's pretty sweet. And I, you know, I went and mined one. And then this morning, she came running up to me and gave me two. So um, I put one of them on this morning. So if you're like me and this kind of stuff distracts you, I'm sorry. But it's pretty sweet, so I'm going to wear it anyway. So, um, But no, and it literally just says NGBC on it. And then uh, the other one she made says, I love my church. And I thought that was really, really cool. So we are so excited for what God is doing, not only in our midst, but in the midst of our children's ministry. Amen. Um, It is so cool to see this next generation growing in the Lord, coming to know him and growing in what it means to know him. And I'm so thankful for our junior church workers and teachers and leaders, Word of Life, um, all that serve with our children's ministry. Uh, They don't do this because they need friends in fifth and fourth grade. Um, they don't do this to babysit. Um, they do this because they love these kids and they want to invest in them with the word of God. And so we're excited for that. Along those lines, uh, we were going to have a meeting today at 430, I believe was the time on that for anyone interested in helping with those classes and helping with uh, junior church or things like that. Um, because one of the, the main teachers is going to be gone today. Uh, she is on vacation. So that's an awesome thing that she can get away. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move that uh, to a later date. So we'll be announcing that here soon. But if you're interested, interested in helping in children's ministry in any way, shape, or form, nursery, all the way through uh, the uh, sixth grade. Uh, there's a small little paper at the Welcome Center, and I think it's called like Helping Hands. Um, you can sign up your name and phone number there, check the box of what age group you'd like to work with, and we'd love to give you some more information on that. And so be watching the bulletin, uh, there will be a date for that meeting. We're moving it here probably uh, a couple weeks out. Uh, this morning, uh, as I've already said, we are getting back into Galatians, but it's also Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is simply, if you're not familiar with that term or what that means, uh, Palm Sunday is simply the day that we recognize as the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem and began what we call the Passion Week or the last week of his earthly life. And when he entered Jerusalem on that day, he began a countdown that ended with the cross and an empty tomb. Amen. 
And so we are so excited for today. Uh, They shouted and sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, when he entered the city, as we sang this morning. And I'm so thankful that Christ entered that city over 2,000 years ago, because that is how he was able to die and rise again as a payment, as an atonement for our sin. And so we celebrate Christ today as every other worship day or day of worship, I should say. Uh, But this week in the Gospels, if you're curious, uh, I encourage you to read through that section of the Gospels. You can start where Jesus enters the city all the way through the resurrection. Uh, This week in the Gospel accounts gives us some very powerful moments in the ministry of Christ. Every day that Jesus got closer and closer to the cross, we saw more and more things unfold in God's plan. He did all of that to become the sacrifice that we didn't want, but desperately needed. Jesus went to the cross to be the sacrifice that we honestly didn't want as a a human race. We didn't want Jesus. We rejected the light. We loved the darkness. That's what the Bible says. We didn't want him to be our sacrifice, but we desperately needed him to be our sacrifice because we could not atone for our own sins. And so this morning we celebrate that Christ continued. The Bible says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That means he was determined. He had purpose in every day. And you can read those very accounts in the Gospels for yourself this week. As we're going to dive into more this evening, we're going to talk tonight about Palm Sunday. And we're going to look in Luke's account and see some things that jump out to us. And so tonight in our evening uh, Bible study at 6 p.m. right here at the church, we're going to invite you back. We're going to dive into Palm Sunday more this evening. This morning, we're going to dive into Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, in the seats there are some Bibles provided. If you'd like to use one of those, you can just turn to page 822. So page 822, if you're using one of the Bibles provided Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. I I should say I appreciate so much Pastor Greg uh, preaching last week for you. And it was great to hear God speak through him and encourage my heart and what he had to to share. And so it is chapter 5 and we are in week 6. So again, I don't know, I go on vacation and I feel like everybody's just up here saying stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, well, there's six chapters in Galatians. But don't assume we're going to be done in six weeks. I heard that last week in the beginning of the message. Now, the reason I can't say too much about it is because it's true. So it's kind of one of those things. So, um, and actually, uh, just so you know, we, I, I was really praying about this. This might seem strange to you. But as a pastor, um, two of the hardest sermons to prepare for, for most pastors, I'm not going to say every pastor, but most pastors, is Christmas and Easter. Because every pastor sits at their desk for weeks in advance and starts to think, how can I tell this story, the same story that we've heard hundreds of times for some of you that grew up in church, how can I tell this same story in a different way? And pastors will sit and try to come up with creative ways to do that. And so as I was praying about Easter Sunday, because we pushed two of these into, or one of these into two, I realized that week six, or chapter six, I should say, is going to fall on Easter. And I actually really debated that. I was like, is it okay to, to do Galatians 6 on Easter Sunday? Like, that's not an Easter text. Like, can you, are you allowed to do that? Is that okay to do? And so I prayed about it. And honestly, I was like, well, maybe I'll take a week off and come back to it. And just kind of really the Lord was speaking to me that, that he knew where we would be on Easter Sunday. And, and so we're going to be in 
Galatians 6 next week, and we're going to see how the Lord moves and encourages our hearts and minds. Galatians 5 and verse 1. Paul says here to the church of Galatia, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's pray and ask God to affirm these truths in our hearts and minds from his word. Father, we come before you today, Lord, a hungry people. Lord, uh, we need you. We need your word to fill us and sustain us and satisfy us. Lord, it has been so amazing to worship you through song and through giving of an offering. Lord, this morning, this gathering is, is all about you. Lord, genuinely, I thank you for every single person seated here today, for every person that is watching online, for every visitor here today, or maybe return visitor coming to check us out for another time, or maybe somebody here, Lord, that doesn't know Christ. I pray that they would receive the gospel this morning, realizing it's not in their religious works that will grant them salvation or their church attendance or their good behavior. It is solely and only in the person and work of Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is by your blood, by your death, burial, on the cross, Lord, that we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is through your sacrifice that grants to us eternal life. And so we pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know that for themselves, they didn't receive that, I pray that they would make that decision today. Father, for the one that maybe hasn't been in church in a while, maybe grew up in church, got distant at some point, drifted into different pursuits, things that they thought would satisfy them, but they're finding out that those things left them just as empty as before. They're realizing, Lord, the thing they were missing was that relationship, that continual relationship with you that they were denying or ignoring for whatever reason. And I'm so thankful that when we come back to you, Lord, you never left us. That in Christ, you don't go away. You don't leave us or forsake us. You hold on to us. We may feel drifted. We may feel distant, but you never left. And so thank you that when we repent of those things and turn back to you, you're right there to meet us with open arms and grace, to restore us, to lift us up. And so, Father, for whatever is going on in our hearts right now, in our minds, in our lives, I pray that we would be just attentive to your word, that we would be drawn closer to you. Lord, not that we would feel good or feel better, although when we are drawn close to you, Lord, there is a feeling of peace and comfort and rest that we receive and praise you for it. But Lord, really, ultimately, this is all for you and your glory. So we pray, Father, that as we understand your word, as the spirit of God speaks to our hearts and minds, that we would glorify you and praise you because your, your name is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. So thank you, Father, for this morning. Open your word to us now. Spirit, lead, guide, and direct as you see fit. Convict us that need convicting. Encourage those that need encouraging. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we see a command from the Apostle Paul. And we've gone all the way through the first four chapters, kind of going verse by verse, passage by passage through the book of Galatians now for many weeks. If you missed any of these, you can obviously watch them online. But Paul's now getting to a point of giving a command to the church. And what is the command? The command is to stand fast. That's kind of an older phrase. It's not something maybe many of us are familiar with. But he says to stand fast in the liberty in which Christ has made us free. The word or the phrase stand fast in the King James means to stand firm. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down because I think it's an encouragement to realize what we're being called to do, what we're being challenged 
to receive, to stand firm. Another way you could say this is to keep one's standing, to keep your standing, to stand firm. That's what Paul is saying here to this church. Another way to understand this verse would be with or perhaps for liberty, did Christ make us free? Stand fast then and be not entangled. With or perhaps for liberty, did Christ make us free? Therefore, stand fast. So the idea here is, in the King James, it says stand fast because you're free. Another way you can actually understand this passage is to flip those. That because you are free, you can stand fast and stand firm. Why? Because you're not standing on your own foundation. You're not standing on your own foundation of good works and religious duty and obligation and good behavior. Those things are not a strong foundation. Those things will shift and move and you will sink. What did Jesus say? There's two kinds of builders. There's a wise builder and a foolish builder. The foolish builder builds his house on the what? The sand. And when the storm comes and the wind comes, by the way, you notice Jesus says, not if the storm comes, but when the storm comes. Now, many of you, as I look around the room, have lived a lot of years. I'm not going to point anyone out. I'm not going to, you know, address it that way. But some of you are later on in life. Yeah, shocker, I know, Vic. I mean, I'm just as surprised. But as you think about your life, was it really a question of if storms would come into your life? Or is it a question of when the storms came? Notice Jesus says, hey, listen, this is so vital. This is so crucial. You have to seriously evaluate what are you building your life on? Because it's not like, well, there might be some storm somewhere, maybe. It's no, no, no. There will be a storm and there will be many storms. And again, we're going to dive into this in a couple of weeks. Why does God allow those things? Why does he allow bad things into our lives or tragedies? The reality is they're there. And when they come, the time to establish your foundation or what you're standing on is not when the storm's hitting your house. The time is when God gives you that moment of realization to say, man, what am I building my life on? See, there's the sand. What's the other foundation? He says, the rock. Something secure and strong. You see, Paul is saying here, you are already free. So because you're free in Christ, stand firm. Stand fast. Have confidence. Know that you're standing with a guarantee. There's another phrase here at the end. He says, be not entangled. Be not entangled again with that yoke of bondage. This idea of entangled is the idea of slavery. Basically, now that Christ has made you free, and it's a key understanding that he made you free, we stand firm and established, we're firm and established in that freedom. Do not go back to being a slave to law and works. Pastor Greg unpacked this last week very well, talking about the study of going backwards in our faith, regressing in our faith. We are free in Christ. Why in the world would we go back? Paul's saying, don't entangle yourself. Don't wrap yourself up in those things, those religious works, those religious laws. Tyndall actually renders this idea of bondage this way. Tyndall says this, and wrap not yourselves, again, this word entangled, don't wrap yourselves up in this. Now, I know some of you, when you sleep, you wrap yourself up in that blanket. 
I'm talking like you're a burrito in the bed, right? Like you're just like, okay, I'm comfortable, okay? Like nothing's sticking out anywhere, okay? I'm, I'm a foot out guy. You guys know what I'm talking about? A foot, who's a foot out? Anyone else a foot out guy or girl? Okay. That means you're pretty well wrapped up, but you got to put the toes out, you know? Why are you putting the toes out? It's like a temperature check, okay? I'm a little warm. That's going to cool me down, okay? It works. Some of you are like just wrapped up, okay? When you were, maybe if you had children and you were raising your children, do you remember when you would wrap them up and swaddle them? Man, you would just bundle them so tight, especially our youngest son was born in November, so we went through the winter, so we were like, we are going to bundle him, right? Like it's like layers, okay? That idea of wrapping up, binding up this bondage. Paul says, why after you're free would you bind yourself with this stuff? These false teachers have laid out all these religious works and laws that you have to do. You're already free. Why are you refusing to stand firm and confident and established in the freedom that you already have? You're going backwards and wrapping yourselves up in this stuff. My encouragement to you, don't let anyone, yourself included, place those burdens on you. Man, some of you grew up in churches where they just loved to burden you. It was like, you better wear this, and you better not do this, and you better do this. And we're saved by grace, but we basically live by law. We, we believe grace saves us, but you better keep it by being a good person. And if you do mess up, don't you dare tell anyone in church, because if you let it out that you're not perfect, we're going to pretty much kick you out. Now, I'm not saying that you condone sin and compromise sin. We deal with that. There's a need to deal with sin, especially in the church. Man, churches that overlook sin because they want to seem gracious, that leads to cancer in the church that will split and destroy a church. It's got to be addressed, but man, we got to be careful. We're not binding people with law because you didn't do this or didn't do that preferential thing. Notice that these are not sinful things that we're talking about. They're free in Christ. But it's these Judaizers, these false teachers that are trying to bind them with all these laws. I just had a little conversation with somebody in the church who came across the post that seemed to suggest that Christians are supposed to do X, Y, and Z, and we're not allowed to celebrate this, that, or other day, and we're wrong to do so. It's just law. It's just binding. It's amazing to me. There was even scripture being used to try to show that we are under the law, even as Christians. And this is today. See, you read these things in the Bible, and you go, that's so weird. How would anyone do that? Guys, this happens today. There are Christians who are trying to push this stuff on people right now. There are churches meeting, people sitting in chairs just like you are, who are terrified they're not doing enough. Will God really forgive me? Man, they're not standing firm. They're cowering back. They're terrified because they don't really believe they're free because they've been taught apart from religious works they're not. Don't let anyone, yourself included, place those burdens on you. You can jot it down. I encourage you to read it. One of my favorite examples of this is found, and we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but John 11 and verse 44, you can jot it down. This is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's an amazing story, obviously displaying the power of Christ over all things in creation. Not only did he, could he tell the waves to be quiet, the wind to cease, he could raise the dead and heal the sick. He is, he is God, was God. John eleven forty four. Jesus, when Lazarus comes forth, he's wrapped in grave cloths, grave clothes. And as he's coming out of the tomb, Jesus says something so powerful. He told them, loose him 
and let him go. Loose him and let him go. I always found that kind of odd. Like, why does Jesus need to say loose him? Don't you think people would figure out, we probably should get that stuff off of him because he can't really, you know, he's all up in here. He can't move. We want to let him go, but he's just hopping away. Like he can't walk because he's bound up. Why would he need to say loose him? I see this, and, and you can disagree. That's fine. You can be wrong. But I see this as, just kidding. I've always seen that as such a powerful moment where Jesus was teaching what it really means to know Christ. To be, a, to, be, to be a follower of Christ, to be saved. I mean, what does Ephesians 2 says? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and Jesus quickened us, made us alive. He called us from the grave by his grace. And I see a parallel here. When he says, loose him, he's saying, cut away all that stuff, that, that dead man's clothes. Cut all that away and just let him go. Let him live free. By the way, the reason Lazarus didn't need the clothes of a dead man was because he was no longer dead. So he's free now. And you know what the reality is for you and I? We don't need to wear dead man's clothes anymore. Romans chapter 6 says that we have died with Christ and we rose again with him, which is the picture of baptism. See, we, our old man is dead. He's gone. She's gone. That old person is gone. We are new and free, living in the newness of Christ. And so in the same way Lazarus could be loosed and let go to live free, you and I can be loosed from those binding, selfish, fleshy, dead man's clothes. And let to live free. Not to live free, as we established a couple weeks ago, for what we want. But to live free in Christ for his will. To gain the right view of this liberty. That's what Paul is calling them to. Live free. Stand firm in your liberty. Liberty is another word for freedom or the freedom that you have in Christ. To gain the right view of our liberty of freedom or freedom in Christ, we need to understand a couple things. So the first thing we need to understand is that liberty is in Christ alone. Liberty is in Christ alone. Look at chapter 5 and verse 2. Now, we have been reading a lot of verses as we go through the study, so we're going to read all the way down to verse 12. So Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, and again, this is more evidence of the author of this letter. Remember, this letter was written to a group of churches all in this region of Galatia. And Paul's the author of this. He's establishing this church. Or he established this church. Now he's writing back to them to encourage them. Very pastoral type mindset here. He loves this church. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, again, referring to the law, okay, that, that religious work that had to be done by the Jews to show the sign of the covenant that they had being a child of Abraham. Paul is saying, listen, that's an Old Testament law sign. We're free from that because we're in Christ. So he's using it as an example of one of the things the false teachers were teaching. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. We're going to unpack that phrase in just a second. Verse 5, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So you see the comparison. Works of the law, faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calls you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. 
I have confidence in you, though, or I'm sorry, through the Lord, that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubles you, you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they even, or were even, cut off which trouble you. Now, because we have a mixed crowd in here, I'm not going to dive into verse 12, but you can look into that for your own, kind of see what Paul's saying there. It's pretty intense language that he's using there, but I want to look at the bigger picture of this passage. What is Paul getting at here in this idea? He's establishing that freedom comes in Christ alone. Now, we've got to pause here because if you're like me, when I, used to, when I was in Bible college, we had pastors that would come in twice a week and preach chapel. And often, things that they would preach, we've already studied, been studying pretty in-depth, hours in class, reading different theological works on it. And there was often, I, my first couple years in Bible college, I used to have this fatal error when I would sit in chapel. I would always start thinking, I know this. I've heard that. Yep, I've heard that. Oh, I've studied that. Well, that's actually this, and you said it kind of like this, and actually, you're kind of off here, preacher. I'm a freshman in Bible college. I know what I'm talking about. And we kind of have this arrogance. Listen, when I make that statement that liberty is in Christ alone, some of you are thinking, didn't we establish that week one? Didn't we establish that there's only one true gospel and that one true gospel sets us free and it's only through Christ? Yes. And the reason I'm saying it is because I believe I need to hear this every single day. We said it early on. The gospel is not just for salvation and for those who don't know Christ. The gospel is for everyone who's received the gospel to hear it daily that they might be reminded it's not them, it's him. It's not me, it's him. I'm free in Christ because my flesh and others will try to remind me and make me think that I'm not. When we choose works over Christ, when we make this fatal mistake of choosing works over Christ, we lose. That's Paul's point here. That liberty is in Christ alone, and when we choose works over Christ, we lose. What do we lose? Well, he gives us three things here that we can lose. The first thing is we lose our liberty. You, you lose your liberty. You go from being free to weighted down by the doing of the law, not living as free men. We lose our liberty when we choose works over Christ. That phrase there, even in verse 1, when he says the yoke of bondage. Yoke is really translated a heavy burden. A heavy burden. So when somebody says, I'm going to give in to this false teaching, I'm going to live this way. These, even in our day and age today, that say they try to keep all the Jewish festivals, all the Jewish feasts, and all these things, because that somehow makes them closer to God through Christ. That they need all of those Jewish things to, to add to their salvation. The minute they make that choice, they are now putting a yoke of bondage and of burden on their shoulders that they can't bear. They can't bear it. Notice Paul says here that when somebody says they're going to do one thing in the law, in this example being circumcised for the purpose of the Jewish uh, rite and ritual, says, but I, Paul, say unto you, goes on and says some other things about being circumcised, Christ profit you nothing, verse 3. It says here, every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You know what Paul's saying here? You can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, I'm going to do this law and that law, and that makes me better than you. Time out. No, if you understand, you have to do all of it. 
which depending on how you count it, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 613 commands. Some daily, some weekly, some monthly, some yearly. I've met people that do this. Well, I don't, I don't, you know what, brother, I don't do that because the Bible says this. And they'll quote some obscure Old Testament passage that is all law, only applied to the law, only applied to the nation of Israel. It's a ceremonial law or it's a dietary law and it only applied for a time that we are free from that. And then I look at them and I ask them questions like, are you wearing a cotton blend t-shirt? Because the Bible says you're not supposed to mix your fibers. Meaning not fibers like fiber, like Metamucil. Fibers like cotton and polyester, okay? Some of y'all were like, I can't have fiber. I mean, I like fiber one. That's a good snack. I like that. I just, you're still good, okay? But see, we can't pick and choose. And this is what people will do. And they'll take these verses and they'll just extremely remove them from context. Now, someone may have a conviction on something and they'll see an example of it in the Old Testament. And if that's their conviction, no problem with that. Paul actually says, don't argue about days and new moons and holy days. As long as every day is for Christ, you're fine. But the problem is that when we take our personal convictions and we start putting them on other people, that's when we've crossed the line. Now, there's very clear black and white things in Scripture that all believers are to abide by. We are free, yes, but we are called to do certain things to honor God. Those are things that we can call each other to and challenge each other to. Someone can't say, well, I don't have the conviction to pray. What? Bible's pretty clear. Pray without ceasing. That's for everybody. I don't really feel convicted to share my faith. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's for everyone. We're all called to preach the gospel. So again, there are some things that are clear. But we have to be careful here that when we take these things out of context, we put these burdens on ourselves and we end up living defeated, defeated lives. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are newer to church. You're not really getting this application to you, but that's fine. I believe you can understand it in different ways, but I think there's some of you that grew up in a church like this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You left church burdened, not encouraged. You left church weighted down. I'm not talking about spiritual conviction because you were in a sin. That's a good kind of weight. We, we welcome that. Man, when God convicts us of something we're doing that we shouldn't be doing, we should praise God for that conviction because that's an act of grace. When we leave burdened because we're not checking someone else's preferential box, non-biblical structured box, that's a problem. We lose our liberty. Secondly, and quickly, which again, you guys know what that means, you lose your wealth. You lose your wealth in Christ. He says here, you are indebted to the law and can never repay. You are indebted to the law and you can never pay your debt. You are bankrupt. Now we know spiritually, humanly speaking, we're all bankrupt. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus establishes this. And he says that those of you that are really blessed understand you're poor in spirit, meaning you have nothing spiritually to offer in your flesh. You have no, no monetary gain, nothing you can pay spiritually that can buy heaven or buy forgiveness. You are bankrupt spiritually. You are in debt to the law. You can't keep it. You can't pay it off. Jesus stepped in, took your debt, and gave you his ransom, his reward exchanged your indebtedness for his righteousness, and now you are free. See, we're indebted to the law. When we try to live a law mixed grace, we lose our wealth, spiritually speaking, in Christ. This is what the phrase is referring to in verse 4. Let's look at it again. Christ has become of no effect unto you, 
Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Some have used that phrase to try to justify or show loss of salvation, that somebody was saved and now they've lost their salvation, they're fallen from grace. Again, we can't take it out of context. The context here is not speaking to those who understand salvation. He's speaking to those who are mixing law and grace and thinking they're justified by law, not grace. Odds are this is applying to somebody who's not really saved. Contextually, this is referring to somebody who doesn't really know Christ. They think they're good because they're keeping the law. He says, if that's you and you're justifying yourself by the law and not grace and not Christ, you're not even saved. You don't have his grace. The word study New Testament says it this way. I'm going to read. It's a longer quote, but I want to read this to you because I love the way this resource put this into kind of perspective for me. He says, it says this, in the context of verses 1 through 3, Paul is teaching how depending on the law of Moses for salvation makes Christ's work on the cross meaningless. Not for everyone, but for the one that is doing that. The one that is trying to be justified by keeping the law makes the work of Christ on the cross meaningless. Because these individuals choose to obey the law for salvation. They have no room for Jesus Christ and his grace. The grace was not evident at one time and lost Rather, this person deviates from the truth path, the true path of grace. This person did not have the grace and lost it. They deviated from the path of true salvation, which is found in grace. Our greatest wealth is in the riches of Christ's grace. It's the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7 uses that terminology, the riches of his grace. Those that try to justify themselves by religious works and not Christ are making the grace of Christ of no effect for themselves. They will stand before God guilty because they cannot cleanse themselves of their sin by keeping the law. If that worked, Christ would not need to come and die. So you lose your liberty, you lose your wealth, and number three, you lose your direction. You lose your direction. I think this is an interesting illustration that Paul uses here. Paul often referred to athletic competition for illustration, athletic games, different ideas of sporting events. But here he uses this idea of running, which I am not a runner. I've tried running. I mean, I've run from things like, or, or to things, I guess, in a sense, but I don't run for fun. Um, you've met people that run when it's like negative degrees outside and like snow on the ground. But let's be honest, when you're driving down the road and you see somebody running in that kind of temperature, doesn't it, I mean, does it cross your mind to just, you know, just veer a little, put them out of their ministry? Like you think, like you can't be enjoying your life right now. Like, let me help you. Let, let me get you out of this situation. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I've got problems, but it does run. I'd be lying if I said it didn't. So pray for me. Pray for your preacher. I've never done it. So I guess I should say that. I want, I want to leave that hanging there. I've left things hanging before in a sermon and didn't finish stories. And people were like, what happened here? And what happened there? I've never hit anyone with a car on the side of the road while jogging. Okay, there you go. Yes. I'll put that very much in. Yeah, clarification. Yes, it's on recording too. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to what we're here to do. So chapter five, look at it again and go down to the bottom there of verse seven. So we lose our wealth, we lose our liberty, we lose our direction. It says here in verse 7, you did run well. So that's an encouraging phrase. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? 
See, when we run without Christ and we're running this life and trying to keep the law and do all these things, we have no purpose. We have no direction. We're aimlessly trying to achieve these things with no clear guidance. We run aimlessly, not faithfully. We're discouraged. We quit. We start up again. We quit again. We see Christianity as nothing more than a glorified spiritual New Year's resolution. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. And then by March, most of us have forgotten what we committed to, why we committed to it, and we've already gone back. Man, don't let Christianity fall into something like that, something so trivial as that. It's got to be something truer than that. It's deeper than that. We run with direction, not because we've determined, but because he ran it before us and we keep our eyes on Christ and we follow him. A way of translating verse 7 is you were running well. You were running well. Who cut in on you that you stopped obeying the truth? The idea here is many of us have seen running competitions and there's lanes and you run in your lane. But you've also seen it where as you're running or somebody's running in their lane, somebody might cross into somebody's lane. That's the picture that Paul's using here. You were running well. Someone cut in front of you. Someone hindered you. Someone crossed lanes. And that stopped you from following truth. That caused you pause and made you quit or made you quit running well. Thing here, you were running well. Why would you quit? Why would you stop obeying the truth? Someone crossed lanes during the race and got them off course. See, Paul's encouraging here. He's saying, listen, don't quit because of someone else. You were running well. Those of you that know Christ, you were running well. Keep going. When we choose works over Christ, we lose. When we choose Christ over works, we win. We do not win our freedom because that was already won by the finished work of the cross. We win because we can live free in Christ. Warren Worsby says this in his commentary. The believer who lives in the sphere of God's grace is free, rich, and running in the lane that leads to reward and fulfillment. Paul now moves from argument to application. From argument to application. Paul spent chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 building the case for the one true gospel and that it brings freedom into our lives. Now he is going to apply these truths to the lives of the believers. So we're going to read in verses 13 through 26, liberty defined. We see a liberty that's clear in Christ, liberty in Christ alone. Now we see liberty defined. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Notice that the opposite that's kind of set up here in the, in the chapter for either using your freedom in Christ to sin, the opposite is to serve. So the question we can ask ourselves applicationally is, am I using my freedom in Christ to indulge or overindulge flesh or am I using it to serve? Am I sinning with my freedom or serving with my freedom? That's the picture that Paul lays forth. He goes on, verse 14. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed, you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If any of you are feeling like, man, I'm so tired of this sin getting victory over me. I'm so tired of giving into that sin. I think I got it and then it comes back around. The key is not you do better. The key is not you just get better at it. 
The key is, are you spending time with him? Are you walking in the spirit? Are you living in a continual relationship with him? I'm not saying we're never going to sin. I'm saying, Paul says, man, when our eyes are on him and we're growing in the relationship, we're going to find we sin a whole lot less. That's the point there. That if you don't want to give in to sin, you need to walk and grow in the spirit, which takes time with him. It goes on to say this, verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. We've all experienced that. And the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. I think we've all been there. You know what you want to do. You know what God's called you to do. But in that moment of weakness, you give into the flesh and you find yourself doing something you don't want to do. It goes on to say this. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. So these are all works of the flesh, things that our flesh wants to produce. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, don't read that quickly. This is Paul saying, hey, listen, if you're doing any of these things and you're not under conviction, there's no spiritual conviction there. You're doing any of these things and you don't feel convicted. You think I'm fine. Paul says you're probably not a follower of Christ. Because if you can do these things, in my opinion, without conviction of the spirit, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's words. But he goes on. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you see the application here? And it's, it's just dripping from the passage. It's everywhere. It's, listen, now that you understand you're free in Christ, let me tell you how you should use that freedom. A couple things I want to draw from this, more of an overarching application for time's sake. Biblical doctrine is always practical. Biblical doctrine is always practical. Paul established a doctrine in Galatians that we are free in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, that that faith in Christ is the foundation of salvation, not religious works. That's a doctrine. That's a teaching of Scripture. And it's practical. So many Christians that think that studying doctrine is only for pastors or really serious or maybe even just bored Christians. Nothing is farther from the truth. And Galatians demonstrates that fact. The doctrine Paul is teaching, liberty in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, becomes extremely practical. This teaching affects how we live this life, how we pray, how we see ourselves, how we serve, our view of the Father, our view of his word, and so on. It ripples through all of our beliefs. It's not just, I, I know I'm free so I can live in this way. It's, I read his Bible as a free man, not as one that's bound in fear and keeping the law. It's enjoyable because I know who I am in Christ. I serve not out of fear because God will strike me down if I don't. I serve because I've been set free and I want to bless his church and bless my father because all he has done for me of a free will choice to just love him and love others. 
And it changes everything when we understand the truth of doctrine. So here, Paul is establishing that my life is not to be controlled by some set of rules that I try to follow and keep. My life is to be controlled by the Spirit. See, if my life is not to be controlled by outward rules, what or who is it that leads me? Biblical Christianity is Spirit-led. It's not led by the law. It's led by the Spirit. My life in Christ is not governed by a list of do's and don'ts in the law. My life in Christ is governed by the Spirit's leading and guidance through his word. I need someone to control my life. (laughs) I know that's true of me. I'm going to guess it's true of you. I need someone to control my life from within. That someone that God gives me is his Holy Spirit because I can't control my life. I can't even do what I want to do, Paul says, on my own. I need the Spirit. So John chapter 14, jot it down. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. John chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Just two examples of the Spirit being given to us to guide us and lead us and direct us into all truth. So John 14, verses 15 through 31. John 16, 1 through 16. Again, some believe that if Christians know they are free in Christ... They will live in rampant sin, believing our liberty is a license. The truth is that those in Christ are led by the Spirit, and there is no greater conviction than when the Spirit gives our conviction or gives conviction to our hearts. And there is no greater comfort than Him when we repent or change our mind about our sin, mourn and turn from it for God. See, so many people say, well, if you tell people they're free, they can just live however they want. They'll live in rampant sin. There's nothing farther from the truth because when we do sin as followers of Christ, there is no greater conviction. I can't preach greater conviction. Your, your spouse can't convict you greater. Someone else, your own heart can't convict you greater than the Spirit of God can convict you. See, it's not a license. When we're in Christ, the Spirit of God will convict us. But also when we turn from our sin and trust in him again and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. Renew in me a right spirit. The Spirit of God will comfort you greater than anyone else or anything else can comfort you. Next week, we're going to dive into chapter 6. And through the Spirit's leading again, we will see that there are some practical examples here that by his grace, I will choose to love others and live for others, not for self. Again, because doctrine is very practical. In closing, I have to ask this question, then we're going to have a time of invitation. Do you believe, you don't have to answer out loud, but do you believe what I've been saying this morning? Just, just, I want you to think about that for a moment. Do you believe what we've been saying this morning, that you are truly free? Do you believe that faith in Christ alone, receiving his grace and forgiveness of sins, has made you innocent and free before God for all eternity? Or do you find yourself hoping it's true? Hoping it's enough? Do you find yourself trying to work to maintain a justified status? You might say, Pastor, I'm, I'm good. I, I, I really do believe that. Then I pray that you would begin to pray and say, God, strengthen me in this, that I would stay firm and stand fast. Because I know pastors who pastored for many, many years that struggle with this very issue and still do this day and every day, every Sunday rather, they get up and preach a gospel of grace and they go home and they go, I hope I'm doing enough. I've had pastor friends that I've talked to that they just struggle with this. You see, the false teachers in Galatians needed the Galatians to do something. They needed something to happen. They needed the people in the church to be fearful. 
Now, this is true in, in a greater sense. I think that we're understanding more so today than ever, but I think it's true spiritually. If a teacher can get you to fear that you're not doing enough, you'll exchange your freedom for comfort. If you fear, you will exchange fear for comfort and guarantees. And so what the Judaizers did was they convinced the people of the church that they weren't doing enough. So they willingly surrendered their freedom in Christ and willingly took on all of these rules and laws because these are tangible things. These are things I can touch. And you tell me that if I do these things, then I'm really sure that I'm going to be saved. They exchanged freedom for fear. See, anytime we do that, we have to be fearful first. We have to believe that what we have in our freedom isn't going to provide the guarantee that we need to be safe in our convictions. And Paul is preaching to them and teaching to them because there is such a danger there. He's saying, listen, you stand firm in your freedom because it wasn't the works of the law that saved you. It was Jesus Christ alone. And so my challenge to you this morning is, do we believe that? And if we believe that, will we live different lives? Would you maybe bow your head right there where you are and begin to pray? And the praise band's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And I'm going to ask that as we are led in this song, that if God is leading you in some way to pray, to come forward, to bend a knee, that you wouldn't even look at the screen when we stand in just a moment. You wouldn't sing one word, but that you would move from your seat. You would come forward and bend a knee and begin to pray. And begin to ask God to convict you of anything that needs to be convicted. Maybe you've been living in this mindset of, I can do it. Maybe you've never received Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. Maybe you'd come and do that today and realize it is the free gift of salvation that cleanses us from sin and grants to us eternal life. Maybe you're a follower of Christ this morning and you know that you've been saved by grace through faith. But you've been trying to work to keep that status. You've convinced yourself or maybe someone else has that if you don't do this and do that, that you're going to lose it. Maybe you'd come and pray and say, Lord, help me to stand firm, to stand fast to be confident in the, the trust that I have in you, that you are who you say you are in your word and the guarantees it lays forth is true. Maybe you'd come this morning and begin to pray and say, God, help me not to exchange fear, my freedom for fear. Lord, that we would have a healthy fear, a reverence of you, yes, but not that we would be afraid of you as your children. You are our heavenly father. We are your sons and daughters, and you call us into a relationship that we might grow and know you more. Father, as only you can, I pray that you would do what you need to do in this service. Spirit, we do pray that you would lead God and direct. Whatever somebody here is dealing with, Lord, maybe there is somebody here that's battling in a sin issue. Father, I pray that you'd set them free, that they would know that they can have victory over that thing, that situation, if they would just turn to you, look to you, surrender, and trust you to give them the strength to overcome. You've already defeated sin and death and hell. And Lord, you can take care of these things as well. Father, we do pray as well that you'd be with the upcoming Easter weekend. Maybe some would come and pray for that. And pray for your movement there. Father, in all these things, we give you all the glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we are led in a song of invitation? Would you come? Whatever God has laid on your heart, would you come and pray? Either there in your seats or here in the front. As we respond to what God is doing as we sing.